Well, good evening everyone. My name is Robin Archer and I'm the director of the Ralph Miliband program here at the London School of Economics. And I'm really pleased to introduce our speaker uh, tonight, Dr. Maya Goodfellow. Now, Maya's an academic, a broadcaster and a writer and much else besides. Um, she's a graduate both of the London School of Economics, where she's actually played a major role in the Ralph Miliband program, and she's also a graduate of SOAS, the School of African and Oriental Studies in the University of London, where she teaches a number of courses in politics and in development studies. But May is also, I think it's right to say, she's a public intellectual. And, um, you know, her, her opinions and her articles appear regularly um, in the in the print media, in newspapers like The Guardian, The New Statesman, New York Times, but also in the broadcast media. And I won't list all the broadcast media where you can find Maya's work, but suffice to say that she appears in multiple programs, including flagship programs like the BBC's um, Any Questions. She, she, she's, also, she's also a regular contributor to sort of labour and progressive forums and debating environments and, and conferences and activist events. Mm -hmm. I mean, again, I won't list them all, but like The World Transformed, these kinds of events. And most recently, she's published a book, Hostile Environment. With Verso, the subtitle gives you some feeling about it, how immigrants became scapegoats. And it's drawing on the arguments of that book that... Um, uh, Mayer's lecture does today. Now, um, after we've spoken, you'll be able to engage with all the details of that argument because the book will be available outside. And um, it's it's um, it's a, obviously a very topical and very important issue, but it's also a very um, very well written and um, worth reading uh, volume. And if you want to get it signed, you can come back and get it signed as well. Uh, well, I'm sure even if you've got the book already. So look, what we're going to do is May's going to speak for about 50 minutes, um, maybe 45 minutes, something like that, and then we're going to have a good chunk of time for questions and discussion. But first, can I ask you to join me in welcoming our speaker, Dr. Mayo Goodfellow. Hi everyone, uh, just shout if you, or wave your hands if you can't hear me, but I think uh, you all should be able to. Um, so I just want to first say thank you very much for coming to this lecture to hear a bit about the politics of immigration in the UK, um, particularly with, I'm not going to name the reason why people maybe wouldn't come out tonight, but thank you for coming into central London to hear me talk about this. And I just want to start before I get into the some of the arguments in the book and really what the lecture is going to be about. I want to start by really first saying that I'm really, really honoured to be, to be asked to give a Ralph Miliband lecture. So as Robin kind of suggested, I've been involved in the Ralph Miliband programme for, I think, over five years? I, for quite a long time now um, as the assistant to the Ralph Miliband uh, programme. And this is something that I did whilst I was doing my PhD. And it's a space where I've got to work with and meet and learn some, from some really amazing people. It's also been a source of income that I've been able to use to sustain myself throughout my PhD. And so I really value the opportunity to be able to contribute to um, such a prestigious lecture series. And I think doing so is incredibly important, um, given that this is a space to carry on some of the debate and discussion that was related to Ralph Miliband's work and his memory. And so in that kind of spirit, I'm 
going to, over the next 45 minutes or so, try to set the immigration debate as it is now in its historical context. And there's a lot that I could go into here. Uh, I, not to plug my book excessively, but you know, I go into quite a lot of detail in the book about the history of legislation and rhetoric um, in the UK. So if you want to get a bit more to grips with some of that, it is covered in the book, but I'm going to use the history broadly. I'm going to explain a bit about the history to situate our contemporary immigration system and to think about how it looks now. And then I'm going to talk a bit about the two main arguments that are made against immigrations, kind of fall into two ca camps as I kind of see it. One is the economic and the other is the quote-unquote cultural. Um, but what I'm not going to do, and maybe this is something we can do in the Q&A, is I'm not going to go into too much detail about the ins and outs of the contemporary hostile environment. That is something I'm very happy to discuss. Um, but I'm also not going to talk about the more recent proposals from the Conservative government around the so-called points-based system that they have um, set out in the past month or so. That is something, as I say, I'm, I'm happy to answer any questions about or have some good discussion about after I've spoken. Um, but I first want to, as I say, give some, I guess, some historical context to the UK's immigration um, system. And I want to kind of think about what is what we might see recent history around immigration legislation and rhetoric. And I want to do so by thinking about one particular case to begin with. And that is the case of Joy Gardner. So this is not a test for people in the room, but I just want to get a sense of how many of you might have heard or know of Joy Gardner. If you could maybe raise your hand just to give me an idea. Okay, so there's quite a few, a few people. Um, so for those of you who know, this will be a reminder, and for those of you who don't, this will be an introduction, I suppose, into Joy Gardner and her life. And so I'm just going to talk a bit about her and give you a bit of background about her. So Joy Gardner was born in Jamaica and grew up in Long Bay, Portland, and came to the UK in July 1987, when she was 34 years old. She came to join her mother, Myrna Simpson, who had come to the UK from Jamaica in 1961. So her mother came to this country when Jamaica was still a colony of the UK, and it would um, be given independence a year later. So... As some of you might know, maybe you are familiar a bit with the history anyway, or maybe you gleaned this from the so-called Windrush scandal. Because of the way UK nationality law worked in the 60s, as someone who was living in a, or at least the start of the 60s, as someone who was living in a British colony, Joy's mother, like many others who lived in colonies and former colonies, was a British subject or Commonwealth citizen. So she, like many others, had the right to move to the UK. And this was a right that anyone in the colonies or former colonies had under empire. Um, and it was one that was written into law through the 1948 British Nationality Act. So this act didn't necessarily hand out any new privileges, but what it did is it created a check against any withdrawal of those existing rights to move. Um, and that Nationality Act was introduced by Labour government in part because it was trying to retain the UK's sense of power in the world as the empire fell and was brought down by anti-colonial movements. This is a history um, of movement and rights that I would argue in the public discourse at least isn't well remembered. It's very well documented in a lot of the academic discourse, 
But I don't think that it is particularly in the public mindset in the same way that maybe it is written into the academic uh, literature on the history of immigration legislation in the UK. And so I'll just give you a brief example about what I mean by that. So in keeping with, I think, how immigration and movement, maybe is what we want to call it, is talked about in the public domain, the BBC very, very recently, just at the start of this year, produced an information pack on immigration. It's very interesting. I'd encourage you all to go and read it. It's around 200 pages, um, but not of dense text, so it's not, it's not particularly difficult to make your way through, and it does a lot of different things, but one of the things that it, did, it does is it includes a very brief overview of what they call the history of immigration and immigration legislation to the UK. And one of the things it does when it's, do, when it's giving that history is it talks specifically about Asian immigrants who came to the UK in the 50s. And this is the term that is used, it's the term that's used in a lot of the public discourse and also parts of the academic discourse. But importantly for our purposes, I think it is quite important to remember that the people who were coming to the UK from countries like India, people like my own mother who migrated to this country from India via Uganda, didn't come here at all as immigrants. They came as citizens and subjects. And this erasure that seems to have occurred that's kind of tied up with language and how we talk about this movement um, and how it's tied up with empire also means that one of the things that happened when there was a leaked, um, the leaked there was a leaked report into the so-called Windrush scandal, Channel 4 um, got a copy of bits of the report. And one of the recommendations that was made by, in this um, leaked report was that civil servants who were dealing with immigration cases needed to be better taught about the UK's colonial history in order to be able to process those cases. And this is one of the reasons why, because this history of empire is so bound up with the history of movement and people's rights at the time. So under this system, Joy's mother moved to the UK in 1961. But by the time Joy came to join her mother 26 years later in 1987, British immigration law and nationality law had drastically changed, and it drastically changed people's rights and their ability to move and, and how they could move. So, as I said at the start, I'm not going to go into all the ins and outs of the history. I have kind of documented this, and it's documented elsewhere. But essentially what happened is from 1962 onwards, there were successive pieces of legislation they were introduced, they made it more difficult for people to move to the UK. So these people who had rights in the colonies and former colonies, it made it harder for some of those people to come to this country. And actually, even prior to the 1962 Commonwealth Immigrants Act, which is seen as a, one of the big markers of immigration legislation in the UK, this period between 1948, when you have this, this British, British Nationality Act and the 1962 Commonwealth Immigrants Act, what you have and what you find in some of the literature is Labour and Conservative governments trying to do things, I guess on the sly in a way, to try and make it more difficult for people to move. So one of the things that it's, it's argued it happened is there was an attempt to intervene in the market to raise the price of low-cost tickets on transatlantic crossings to try and make that movement slightly more difficult. But importantly, from the legislation itself, so this 1962 legislation, right through the 60s, 70s, and 80s, um, one of the central issues from the governmental perspective, from the way the politicians were talking, also from the way that parts of the public discourse manifested, one of the central issues was race. So much of the legislation from the 60s onwards 
which was introduced by both Labour and Conservative governments, was implicitly about race. And so, although it wasn't stated in the laws themselves, the aim really was to make it more difficult for people of colour to come to the UK. And, I, you know, this isn't just my reading of this. This is something that is, is well documented in the literature on the subject. But it's also something that's been reflected on by politicians who were part of those debates at the time. And one of the acts that I look at in the book and that is looked at a lot in the literature is the 1968 Commonwealth Immigrants Act, which, as some of you might know, um, was about making it more difficult for specific people to move to this country. This was a piece of legislation that was passed by the Labour government. And one Conservative, Lord Gilmore, told the New Statesman in 1999, and this is a quote from him, he said, if it had been the case that it was 5,000 white settlers who were coming in, the newspapers and politicians who were making all the fuss would have been quite pleased. And so this piece of legislation, like many before it, was about race. And in 1976, Roy Jenkins, who I'm sure a lot of you are familiar with, also, also framed his argument in parts around race when talking about immigration. And he said, there is a clear limit to the amount of immigration which this country can absorb. And it is in the interests of the racial minorities themselves to maintain strict control over immigration. And so I'll come back to what really underlies this argument later on. But this is really, a lot of this is really framed implicitly or explicitly as being about race. And so the arguments made to justify this legislation were quite similar to a lot of the arguments you find now. I was quite struck when I was doing the research for the book at how similar some of the arguments we see now are to what they were back in the 60s and 70s. The groups of immigrants that they're this, the arguments are targeted at changes. There's changes in the way some of it's framed, but fundamentally some of the arguments remain the same. But I think importantly for our purposes is thinking about what these policies were, what they meant. And Gaminda Bamber, who is based at the University of Sussex, told me when I was doing the research, is that the way she sees these policies, they are called you know, the Commonwealth Immigrants Act, um, they have immigration in their title. She says they're not immigration policies at all. These were policies of racialization, is how she frames it. So demarcating who belongs and who doesn't along the lines of race. And going back to thinking about Joy Gardner and how this all relates is the British Nationality Act of 1981 was one of those pieces of legislation. And until this act was introduced, Joy would have had a route to um, British citizenship through her mother, who was in this country. But because of this act, the grounds for which were laid by a Labour government, but it was introduced by a Conservative government, actually meant she couldn't get citizenship this way. And so Joy came into the country as a tourist and could stay here for six months. That's the right she had under the, uh, the immigration and nationality legislation as it existed at the time. Um, but after six months, she, just, she wanted to try to find a way to stay in the country. And I don't have time to go into all the ins and outs of what is a very complex case, all the back and forth. There's a very good, there's a lot of literature on this, but there's also a very good documentary on 4OD that kind of, uh, on channel, this is channel 4, that documents exactly what happened. And it has interviews with her family. Um, but essentially, there's a lot of back and forth between Joy in the state and immigration officials, she was very briefly married, the government attempted to deport her and she appealed this and essentially what she was doing was she was trying to find a way to stay in the country. 
to stay in the country where her mother and much of her extended family were, but also a country where her son had been born. So during this time that she'd been in, in the UK, she'd had a son. And then what happens is, according to her lawyer and reports from the time, there was no prior warning, but on Wednesday the 28th of July, 1993, a group of police and immigration officials turned up at Joy's flat. The Home Office had deliberately not told her that this was going to happen because they claimed they thought she would abscond. And at the time, she believed that her attempt to stay in the country was still being considered by the government. And the immigration minister at the time admitted that lit letters sent to her solicitors, which were dated the days before this attempt to deport her, um, were intentionally sent late so that she would not be able to, be, she wouldn't be forewarned, as I've said, about this planned deportation, but she also wouldn't be able to get advice from his listers, right? So that's, that, this is where it is for Joy is on this morning. She believes that her attempt to stay in the country, is her appeal is still being considered. And so in the summer of 1993, just a few months after Stephen Lawrence was killed, on this morning, 6.30 in the morning, reports say immigration officials and police turned up at her home where she was with her five-year-old son. Uh, I'm not going to go into all of the details about exactly what happened. It's incredibly violent, and I think uh, there's a risk of almost fetishizing this kind of violence. Um, I would encourage you to go away and read about it, but I, there was essentially a, a struggle between Joy and these immigration officials and police, and she was um, restrained, but she was bound so tightly with such force, with tools like a body belt, tape, she was handcuffed, she had um, things put on her ankles, and the force was so excessive, so um, violent was this interaction that she was suffocated, and a few days later she, um, she died. And one of the post-mortem examinations after this said that the cause of her death was um, oxygen being cut off to her brain. And what happened after this was three police officers were tried on manslaughter charges in 1995, and they were all acquitted, and there was never an inquest into Joy's death. Um, in an interview for the collection Mother Country, the Real Stories of the Windrush Children, which is edited by Charlie Brinker's Cuff, and which I would also encourage you to get a copy of and read, um, her mother just talks about this, talks about what happened to her daughter, but she also encourages to remember her, to say we have to try to remember Joy as a student, as a mother, as somebody who was studying media before her dreams were cut short. Um, and the way that Joy was treated, I think her experiences of the UK immigration system and her death is really tragic. I think this isn't a case that was well known, so ju judging by you know, the number of hands, there was a few people in the room, this is something I've talked about at a lot of events around the country, and it's always kind of, there's sometimes a few people, but it's, not, it's not, often not very many people that know this, which I think tells us something in part about the normalization of, that occurs around violent border control. And how people are remembered or not tells us something about what we see as parts of norm, normal functioning of the immigration system. Um, but I also think that this shows us the very human outcome of immigration policies. So I spent a lot of time reading about the pieces of legislation that were introduced by different governments and thinking about the ways that politicians talked about immigration. But I think at times if we do that, if we just focus on that, we lose actually how this impacts human beings, how it impacts people who are trying to navigate the system. Um, and importantly, thinking about 
the, the, the human impact of the, the, these policies and how they were devised in order to make it difficult for certain people, certain people who are racialized as a threat, certain people who are racialized as other, to come to this country. And for me, it really shows that the, the potential impacts of the dehumanizing language and policy that has really been commonplace around immigration for quite some time. So, for instance, to give you an example of what, it, what, I mean, what I mean by this, for me, it shows one of the problems with this term illegal immigration. So, even after the so-called Windrush scandal, we know that the hostile environment is still in place, just um, as a reminder that people are still being denied access to basic services, uh, even though you know, immigration was on the front pages of our newspapers, I would argue, maybe, I, maybe I'm incorrect about this, but I would argue immigration was on the front pages of our newspapers, on our, you know, it was top of the news headlines in so much of, our, um, so much of the reporting during the so-called Windrush scandal, one of the only times, I think, in British history where it's been focused on to such an extent because the outcome of government policy is being analyzed, not immigrants themselves are being problematized. I'm not saying that never is immigration policy scrutinized, but I mean the sustained debate around this, how sustained it was, the discussion around the Windrush scandal. But even as this was happening, even as the outcomes, the very clear outcomes of this, this package of policies, uh, were on display and were being debated, um, the government said, is these policies are necessary to deal with people who are undocumented, people who they called illegal immigrants. And the Labour Party at the time um, said they would end the hostile environment. This is maybe is something that will continue over into the next, um, the next, when the next leader is elected, I don't know. Um, but even as they were saying they would repeal the hostile environment, there were prominent politicians from across the spectrum who were using this language of illegal immigrant. Um, continuing to problematize people who are undocumented. And one of the reasons why I think that this is something we should pause and think about and challenge is, for me, what Joy Gardner's life shows us, what her death shows us, is that people who are undocumented are just that. They are people, and their cases, their lives, the ins and outs of why they have become undocumented is far more complex than this label illegal will ever allow. But the way it's talked about in the debate kind of moves that to one side and allows us to overlook the human consequences and the people who are at the center of this. But for me, it also, thinking about Joy Gardner and people like Joy Gardner who have been so impacted by the UK's immigration system by the UK's immigration legislation, it also shows to me, and this is, was one of the reasons why I decided to write the book, that one of the main impetuses is that although many, some people on the left might want to see it as such, the, we can't see this country's hostile environment as only beginning with Theresa May and the coalition government or beginning with Brexit. You know, to say that hostility didn't begin with either of those things does not mean ignoring the very specific forms of suffering and damage that are being caused by the hostile environment at this exact moment, or to suggest what is happening now is totally the same as what has come before. I think we need to understand the changes, what has changed, um, as well as what has stayed the same. Immigration policy and discourse and the impacts they have have shifted, producing different forms of marginalization, discrimination, and racism. But I do think we have to understand the historical, the long-term hostility that has existed in the system and how this has impacted people. 
And one of the reasons for me why it's important is actually I don't think this history is one that is particularly well known, at least in the popular domain. Like we are less familiar with this or we're less likely to discuss it than we are maybe the history of Enoch Powell, the Rivers of Blood speech, the National Front. I would argue what is less discussed or what is less known, maybe it's not that it's less discussed, but what is really less understood, um, I think, is that some, not all, of the ideas that Powell advocated for, not the language necessarily that he used, but some of the thinking, some of the thinking underlying what he was saying, were part of the mainstream in terms of who was seen as a threat and who wasn't, who needed to be controlled and who didn't, how it, the immigration really, really um, was seen and treated. And so, for instance, I mentioned this BBC fact pack before, um, and I mentioned it in relation to how movement was framed in the 50s and people who were coming as citizens and subjects are seen now as, termed now as immigrants. Um, but actually, also, if you look at that BBC fact pack, is what you find is the bits of the legislation are talked about, but what's, what isn't really sufficiently, in my view, really engaged with is how race and racism were central to those pieces of legislation. Really central if we look at a lot of the things that were said at the time and said since. Um, and that matters because when politicians aren't problematizing immigration and talking about how it needs to be controlled, there are moments, there are many moments when they will talk about the history of people moving to the UK and celebrate it. So there are these moments of celebration. So in 2013, then Prime Minister David Cameron said, our migrant communities are a fund fundamental part of who we are and Britain is a far richer and stronger society because of them. This is our island story. Open, diverse and welcoming and I am immensely proud of it. For me, this is an example of how many of us, many, or at least many of our politicians are far less inclined to think about the insidious and incredibly damaging forms of exclusion that met people when they arrived or that people bumped up against when they were trying to move. And for me, this telling where racism is knitted into immigration legislation by the party political left and right, maybe would force, about, force us to think about contemporary immigration legis legislation and rhetoric in a different way and would really challenge this notion that the UK is intrinsically a progressive and welcoming country. But also for me, this history is essential to understand in order to make sense of our contemporary immigration system. So as I said, I want to think a bit about some of the arguments that are made around immigration. And I spent the past few years for the book, but also my work more broadly, talking to people about their experiences of that very system. So people who are trying to navigate the UK's immigration system, um, from people who are trying to seek asylum to people who are trying to regularize their status. And one of the people who I spoke to, who I quote in the book, who was trying to seek asylum in the UK, and her case was very complicated, but she'd been through a number of, number of different lawyers, been to court a number of different times, and was just trying to find a way to stay in this country where she had made a life for herself, but also because she feared persecution in her home country. And she described the immigration system to me, she said that she really sees it, and this is a quote from her, she says it's designed to isolate you, to bring you down, to make you want to give up and pack your bags and just go. People have to really own their situation. You can't rely on someone else. You have to know your rights. And without that, you're headed for downfall. I'm not really a bad person, but you've treated me so bad for just wanting to live a life. And some of the things that she was kind of 
talking about are things like the hugely extortionate immigration fees that people have to pay. So in 2016-2017, fees for settlement, residence, and nationality increased by 25%. So if you want to become a permanent resident in the UK, it will cost you around £2,389. But we also have a system where legal aid has been stripped back to such an extent that if you are trying to navigate this system, coming by a lawyer that you can afford and that is reliable can be quite difficult if you can't get support from other immigration services that exist. But it also means that immigration services that do exist that are giving support to people, particularly people who are undocumented or trying to regularise their status, are so overstretched and overburdened. I went to quite a few of these around the country and spoke with people who work in those those services about how they feel like there is an intentional, you know, how they see it is there is almost like an intentional hostility within the system that makes it so difficult for them to do their jobs. Um, and so many people I spoke to talked about the kind of suspicion they feel like they're treated with. They feel like they are having to, they're starting from a place of assuming that they're lying about their immigration or asylum case and they have to prove otherwise. And Really, it's, I just spoke to countless people who were trying to navigate the system, people who had risked their lives to get to this country, and there were a lot of cases of people who, when they risked their lives, also lost their lives trying to get here or stay in this country. And the way that I see it in the book and that I map it is that it's anti-immigration ideas that help to make this kind of punitive policies possible. And so, I, as I said right at the start, these, um, I see these I, these these come in two overlapping forms. So one is the economic arguments and the other is the cultural. And so I'm just gonna spend a few minutes talking about both of those. So the first is economics. And I'm sure you're all aware with this notion that immigration is bad for the UK economy. Uh, a very good example of this was in September 2017. Theresa May um, declared in the Commons, there is a reason for wanting to control immigration is because of the impact that net migration can have on people, on access to services and on infrastructure, but crucially also because it often hits those at the lower end of the income scale hardest. And I spoke to a number of economists when I was doing the research of the book who argued against this. And I mean, one of the things that I think is worth considering is that these arguments, so they come in slightly different forms about, around the economy, they also rest on these kind of... Um, contradictory logics at times. It's immigrants that are coming to take jobs and undermine your wages, but also coming to scrounge off the state. It's immigrants that um, take, are taking up nursing and doctor's posts, but are also at the front of the queue for the NHS. Right? So we kind of have this contradictory logic about what the role of the immigrant is in the economy. And the thing that we know about this, and that we know from the existing research, but also that I know from speaking to some of these economists, is that what you find is that immigration does not drive down wages, even when there are studies that find that immigration has a supposedly small negative impact on uh, wages. It isn't a causal factor. And maybe how we see it is thinking about people who move to the UK don't necessarily create the conditions, like these long-term conditions in which people are exploited, right? This, it's not a particularly helpful way of understanding our economy. And one of the things that Jonathan Portis, who is um, just you know, down the road at King's said to me is that this supply and demand argument that you hear so often about immigration and the economy where it is, there's a finite number, it's treated like there's a finite number of jobs 
and people are kind of battling over them, ignores how if you have proper investment, what you find is people who are coming into the country also create demand and create jobs. And so this idea of seeing the economy as this kind of container that never changes in terms of its size, in terms of number of jobs available, doesn't really match how we should understand jobs and the economy. Um, and what you actually find as well, if you look at some of this, is you find people who happen to be migrants who are fighting for better paying conditions all across the country, including places like my own university, SOAS, including the LSE, including places like Sotheby's. Um, and I'm not saying this to fetishize people's immigration status, but I do think it's telling that when we're talking about low paying conditions, people's immigration status is one of the most important things to understand it. That's how it's treated in the pub public debate. But when these struggles are covered, so um, the struggle for cleaners at SOAS to be brought in-house, they were being outsourced to be brought in-house, which was won after years and years and years of struggle, um, this was covered. It was recognized in parts of the media and in parts of our public discussion. The immigration status of those people seems to not really matter so much. And so it's not really framed as immigrants winning better paying conditions for British workers, as you know, if we were going to flip it on its head when, it's talk when we're talking about low pay. Um, but really, one of the things that I, I learned in, from talking to um, one of the people who like, moved through the system, uh, that, who I talked to, Tatiana Garabito, who is a trained legal advisor and who's a campaigner, who herself came to the UK from Colombia over a year ago, she, she told me that one of the things that um, she thinks when we're talking about these economic arguments is actually to dispel these myths, it shouldn't only be about framing people as economic contributors. So the way that she kind of argued this is, you know, you have to reject the argument that immigration is bad for pay or reduces the number of jobs available for people in the UK. But you don't only argue against anti-immigration narratives by saying we're going to have an immigration system that's only good for the economy. Because her argument is there's a real, real risk that you end up creating this, reproducing this dichotomy between the good and the productive and the bad and the unproductive. Um, and many of us don't want to talk about ourselves like that or other people who happen to be born in the UK. So the argument goes that why would you speak about people who've moved to this country like that? So yes, you need to make these arguments against the economy, but maybe that shouldn't be the end point. Maybe that should be the starting point. Um, and the other issue is how, in how this is talked about in terms of the economy, is this term economic migrant. You hear it a lot. It's become very, very commonplace to, to, to refer to people who it seems to function in the debate in such a way that it kind of refers to people who have come here legally, but who are seen as illegitimate, right? And it's a racialized in a class term. This maybe will change with Brexit. Maybe some of you might argue it already is changing and shifting, like these things are often not static. But it seems the way that it's functioned in the debate, it's less likely to be applied to, say, I don't know, a French financier, an economic migrant, someone maybe who's maybe moving to come and work in the city. And I think that actually we need to understand this is structural, so thinking about now the obvious arguments that we live in a world where capital can move with relative ease, but the movement of people, or at least the movement of some people, is considered a problem. Or in other words, unless it is sanctioned and controlled by government, movement is considered dangerous in the hands of the poor and or people who are racialized as a threat. And so maybe that's something we can discuss a bit more in the Q&A around thinking about how migration is now being framed, legislated for, or treated um, right now by the conservative government in relation to this points-based immigration system. But I think if people are moving for economic reasons, and one of the, I mean, one of the issues with the term economic migrant is that 
any you know any scholar who is worth their salt on the issue, issues of movement will tell you that the reasons people move are often very varied. It's not often not one reason. It's often, often multi-causal. This term is incredibly flattering, flattening. But we should actually be asking why. If one of the reasons is economic, why? Like, why is that the case? Um, and though we know that levels of inequality in the UK show us that not everyone benefits from um, the UK's the UK's economy in the same way, what we do know is the UK as a whole currently benefits from what is a, a very unfair global economy. And so to me, this is one of the reasons that we should challenge the idea that some people shouldn't be allowed to try to move and make a better life for themselves and their family. And you only need to glance at the, you know, some of the figures that I mentioned before in terms of the cost of the immigration system, but also things like the investor visa, where if you, have, if you happen to have a spare two million, then you can move to this, this country with, with relative ease. You only have to look at that to see how the system is classed, to make sense of how class is structuring that movement. But the what, final thing that I'll say about... Um, oh, I, my slide is, is behind me. Uh, and now it's not working. Okay, you'll have to keep with this slide on here, I'm afraid. Um, what, but what, the final reason why this, this economic argument isn't, doesn't really... The economic arguments, the way that it should be, they should, maybe we should think about challenging them, is Asad Raymond from War on One, who's the director of War, War on One, has pointed out a, num a number of occasions that actually you should be trying to strive to create a world in which people also have the right to stay as well as the right to move. So it's not particularly, um, it's not, it's not a particularly comfortable place to be to say that you know, people should have to move because of economic degradation or changes in agriculture that may be related to climate, climate and economic factors in the country they live. I don't think that's necessarily something to celebrate. So at the same time as trying to change the world um, so people can stay where they want, I think it also means that we have to, whilst that movement is happening, challenge the idea that that movement is a threat to us, whoever that us, you know, I say it in, I use quotation marks for it, um, that there is a threat to us and we have to maybe flip it and think about, you know, I got to the end of writing a book about immigration and using the word immigrant a lot of times and thought to myself, you know, really we should be talking about bordering and the processes of bordering more than we're just trying to think about the figure of the immigrant. We should be thinking about the processes that are implemented that make movement more difficult. Um, and this is kind of brings me to the other argument around immigration. Uh, so as I've already said, the movement of some people is considered a threat, right? And this shifts over time in depending on where you are, which country you're in, um, even which part of a, a country you're in, uh, in terms of who's constructed as a threat and it, it, what time you're thinking about that. It does change. Um, but actually, this tells us that this, this construction of the, the figure of the migrant as threatening is not only about economics, it's also about race. Um, and this is really where the, the other key argument it comes. It's the idea that immigration is a threat to British culture or people's way of life. We hear this quite a lot in the debate. And so a good example of this is, is David Cameron. I'm picking on David Cameron a lot, but um, he's got a lot of useful, said a lot of useful things around this for our purposes. Um, when he was trying to negotiate with Brussels before the EU referendum, which now feels like a very long time ago, what they found, what one of his advisors said after the fact, so after the referendum, he said that when they were nego negotiating with the EU Commission, they couldn't find any suitable evidence that would satisfy them 
that immigration put pressure on communities. And this is a quote from him. He says, there was no hard evidence. That is not to say that we didn't perceive it as a problem. Cameron was convinced it was a real challenge, if perhaps more of a cultural one than an economic one. And you do hear this culture argument a lot in a variety of different ways. People talk about the pace of change and their communities being too fast. People talk about their feelings of British culture, you know, being under threat and their sense of national identity. And um, there's lots of ways we can unpick this, but just to briefly think about it, is we can trace this, these arguments to, I mean, we can trace them very far back, but to think about more recently, we can trace these arguments to a group called the New Right. This was a loose collection of academics, journalists, and politicians at one time, seemed to include Enoch Powell, uh, who were really around in the 70s. And what they did is they rejected the scientific, um, the scientific racism argument. So they said, this was a group of, um, I think entirely, or at least predominantly, uh, white academics, journalists, and politicians who were saying, you know, we don't consider ourselves, they said, as white people to think that they were better than people of color, just culturally distinct. And so it was on these grounds the people of colour coming into the countries, so if you remember, if you go think the, the movement that I was talking about at the start of people moving from colonies and former colonies, um, people coming from certain countries are culturally incompatible or threatening to the UK if too many of these people came to this country. And this is what scholars at the time and since have called the new racism. And so to just give you an idea about why they were calling it the new racism, I just want to very briefly um, quote the great late cultural theorist Stuart Hall, who I found incredibly useful to make sense of this. And Hall defined racism, at least one of his definitions, is as follows. He says, it claims to ground the social and cultural differences which legitimate racialized exclusion and biological differences in nature, right? And what he says, what Hall says, in his understanding of, of race, is he sees it kind of coming in two overlapping ways what he calls racism's two registers. That is biological racism, so you know the kind of scientific racism, but also thinking about things like phenotype um, that I was talking about before, and cultural differentialism. He says they constitute not two different systems. It seems therefore appropriate to speak not of racism versus cultural difference, but of racism's two logics. Okay, so this is how Hall sees it, and so Though who, as I've said, might, this might be applied to, has shifted with time, these arguments really still exist. So from the thinking in the 60s that people who were coming from India diluted British culture, to more recent arguments that people who are Muslims or racialized as Muslims are culturally incompatible with Europe or the UK, or even the idea that people from Eastern Europe who are depicted as not quite white in the debate bring crime, discord, and unwanted cultural change to the UK. You find this like in places like, in my research I found it in spaces like the Daily Mail, but also in some what might be deemed more mainstream or centrist news outlets. And so really if you think about it, if you really burrow down into thinking about these cultural arguments, what you find is not all groups of immigrants, or not all people who move, because not everyone is necessarily seen as an immigrant who moves to this country, are seen as culturally incompatible with the UK. Not every group that moves, right? Um, and then there are also the more obvious ways that race functions in the debate. And so what I found in my research um, is there are a number of documentaries about immigration where change was measured. So you would have journalists going to a particular area of the country and saying, immigration has changed this town. 
we, we chose this town to go and look at because the number of white people who lived in this area or who... Uh, who lived in this area 20 years ago was 99% and now it is 70%. And so whiteness was being used as a marker of Britishness in this, in this conceptualization of immigration and change within a town. So what's raised in that process of, of measuring it by the number of white British people in an area is the British people of colour who live in the UK also thinking about how groups of immigrants can you know, span the... the um, the different races, but for me, there's a number of uh, issues with the logic of this argument about culture, which I think we can challenge. And one is, we should question: What do we mean by British culture? Is it static? You know, we might be able to identify some things that we would think is like distinctly British, but is it that these things never change? Is it that they are kind of frozen in time? And to probe this notion of culture, I turn again to, to Stuart Hall and. Like, forgive me for doing so, but there's just a, a really good quote that I have from him um, that I think is worth, is worth reading out in full. And what he, he wrote about some of these ideas around culture is he said, people like me who came to England in the 1950s have been there for centuries. Symbolically, we have been there for centuries. I was coming home. I am the sugar at the bottom of the English cup of tea. I am the sweet tooth, the sugar plantations, the rotten generation of English children's teeth. There are thousands of others beside me that are the cup of tea itself. Because they don't grow it in Lancashire. Not a single tea plantation exists within the United Kingdom. This is the symbolization of English identity. What does anyone in the world know about an English person except that they can't get through the day without a cup of tea? Where does it come from? Ceylon, Sri Lanka, India. That is the outside history that is the history of the English. There is no English history without that other history. And so I think we can begin to use that to probe some of these ideas about culture and what it is and if, if it, if how we conceptualize it. But the other argument with the other issue, my other issue with this, um, and this is the final point that I'll kind of end on, is that how this is framed. Uh, it's framed as if, the, if, the, as if anti-immigration feeling is a natural reaction to too many immigrants of a certain kind coming into the country. So this is an argument that the right made, but that had been accepted by parts of the party political left. Um, so really, what we have to get to grips with is people do express themselves in these terms, right? It's not right to say that no one is expressing themselves in terms of this kind of cultural anxiety. So it's true, it does exist. I'm not denying its existence. But my issue is the way that it's treated as natural and inevitable. So one of the arguments that you find in, um, around so-called immigration control, that is immigration legislation, is that it is necessary, so it's necessary to quote-unquote control immigration to have good race relations, right? So this is an argument that Margaret Thatcher made. It's actually also a variation of an argument that's been made slightly more recently right after the EU referendum by the Labour MP Stephen Kinnock. And what it kind of seems to rest on is the idea that to reduce racism, you have to reduce immigration because racism is a product of too much immigration, Okay, so if you've kind of followed that. And the issue is, is it ignores that racism and anti-immigration views are produced where immigration has been problematized and immigrants demonized. And where also where race and racial differences are treated as if they are um, real, as if instead of constructed. 
So we know from like, the basics of critical race theory that this argument is flawed because race is constructed as not real, these differences between people, while they, they may exist to some degree, it's not as if they're insurmountable and inevitable. And so the way that this manifests in the debate, one of the ways this is manifest in the debate, it's coming up in a lot of different ways, um, is this kind of idea, um, which has been said quite a lot since, the, since uh, 2010, and even during the New Labour years, is that immigration became a problem under New Labour because the government let too many people in. And, you know, there is... Like, there's a whole chapter in the book on immigration, on uh, New Labour and immigration. It's very complicated. New Labour's engagement with immigration and asylum is very, very complicated. Um, uh, but what that argument really ignores, this idea that it was kind of an inevitable reaction to too many people coming into the country, it does erase how anti-immigration rhetoric and policy were being reproduced almost from the get-go when New Labour came into power. And so one of the ways, I mean, the most distinct way this happened from like, the 1998 onwards was the asylum, like successive pieces of legislation around asylum, but also the incredibly, uh, incredibly racialized, incredibly um, harsh words that were used by Labour politicians, including Home Secretaries, around asylum and people who were trying to seek asylum in the UK. And that, to me, is at least a factor in understanding views around immigration and asylum. Um, because although there are moments at which these two things are separated in terms of people understanding refuge and asylum, it's not always the case. At times, these things are lumped in together. And so to say that it's only a natural reaction, for me, ignores a broader political context in which views are produced. And that isn't to say it's only ever top-down. It's slightly more complicated than that. But I do think we have to think about the way that it's being framed and the way that it's being discussed in the um, political and public discourse. Um, and so I think that what we should really see is that is anti-immigration politics and not immigration that is the dangerous and disruptive and damaging force in the UK. And I just want to end by very, very quickly reading you a really small excerpt from the, from the um, book, which I hope will give you an idea. I mean, in part, I want to read this because we are sitting here in the heart of London um, and I think it's really worth thinking about what these debates and what these policies mean for people in this city at this very time, um, as well as the rest of the country. But also, I think, for me, this really, this one I'm about to read kind of reflects um, how class, race, and gender kind of lurk in the background and structure much of the debate in very misleading and unhelpful ways. And so I will just, I'll read you this very short, um, these very short few paragraphs and then I will end. <clears throat> it was ordinary people who suffered in the early hours of the 14th of June 2017 in Kensington and Chelsea, one of the richest boroughs in the country. The blaze that tore through the 24-story West London block snatched away people's homes, their neighbours, their friends, and for some, their family members. 72 people died that summer morning. In the days that following the fire that would simply become known as Grenfell, the name of the tower that had been reduced to a black, hollowed-out structure, residents would speak with fury and inconsolable grief about the fact that they had tried repeatedly to prevent something like this from happening. Complaints and concerns sent to the organisation responsible for running the block and thousands of others were ignored. In a prescient blog, tenants warned that they would only be heard when an incident happened in which people died. 
The charred remains of Grenfell Tower stand on the city skyline as a reminder of failed housing policy driven by profit, profit austerity and corporate greed. But in the days following this atrocity, who this impacted and exactly whose voices had been ignored became clear. The faces of the dead and the missing were taped to lampposts all over West London and appeared on the front pages of national newspapers. People like Lagaya Moore and Khadija Say and her mother Mary Mendy. Many of them belongs to groups which society likes to malign as a burden, while ignoring the ways they're grossly mistreated. Grenfell Tower was the home of migrants from all over the world, refugees and working class Britons of all races. Grenfell residents included the people our politicians and media pit against one another when they blame migrants for undercutting wages, putting strain on our public services, taking up scarce housing or destroying culture. But they were all ignored, all overlooked. Ordinary people are concerned about immigration, we are told. But it was ordinary people who died at Grenfell. Thank you very much. Well, thanks so much, Maya. We've got um, a good chunk of time for questions, um, so I'll just start by taking... If we've got a few questions, I might take more than one, and perhaps you can take some notes. There seem to be a lot of hands. I'll, I'll just start by taking three people, actually. Can I start with this gentleman in the light blue shirt? Oh, could you just say who you are and where you're from, because we have a podcast audience here. Thank you. I'm a software engineer from Hong Kong. I have two questions. First of all, it's about the requirement of speaking English. It seems that it's taking a very heavier consideration going forward. Who do you think have the qualified to tell, to count who speaks better English? Which institution, you know, it seems that, you know, going forward this will be used to qualify who has more qualified to stay. Second is about immigration enforcement. You, we saw that in the America, some cities consider themselves to be like refuge as cities or that the legal enforcement officers, you know, will not, you know, implement Trump's policy. And we know that in the UK, some police forces like Northern Ireland are devolved. Would there be, you know, cases like these where the devolved police force would not be under the home office direction and can, in, and can maybe even, you know, refuse to implement some of these more inhumane, you know, practices. Thank you. Okay, thank you. Uh, my name is Paul Hudson. I've retired from academic life. Um, I've been an immigrant in two countries, Australia and Germany, and I have Indian and Caribbean relations as well as Scots and Irish. In other words, it's a mixed-up family altogether. I also don't in drink English um, breakfast tea because I don't think much of the products of England's well-known tea plantations. Um, one of the questions I, or one aspect of your talk I think that might have been underemphasised is the economic aspect. I've lived in um, two towns in uh, Britain which have got um, large ethnic minorities and they seem to have actually coped quite well. In fact the paradox is that the people who seem to be most prejudiced against immigrants are those who have little contact in fact with them. This is one of the paradoxes. But in Croydon, um, there does seem to be, uh, and this is one of the things I think that needs to be addressed, this is the question I'm going to come to. In um, Croydon, there, has a, there is a home office um, annex there, 
and people who have recently come into the country, they have to keep registered, be registered is every two or three days. Now, naturally, they will stay there. There's no point of them living in North London because it costs about £7 for an adult to get from North London to South London. And given the amount of money, in fact, that refugees and other people have come in, that's an awful lot of money. So naturally, they will look for accommodation in Croy, Nye, where the Home Office is. But one of the aspects of that is that the rents have gone up really quite significantly. Um, a couple actually who lived almost next door to me, they found their rent actually going up 50% within two years. My granddaughter, as a result of that, teachers couldn't afford to actually be living in Croydon. And in one of her academic years, except for three weeks, she had five supply teachers. They get paid much, much more than teachers on the permanent staff. So there are huge um, economic aspects in some areas, not all areas of Britain, but particularly in an area like um, Croydon, as I say, where if I were an immigrant there, that's where I would choose to see if I had to keep on registering. Right. I think Look, this problem is big I think there are quite a lot of questions. So I'll just, have you got your point in, do you think? Or? Well, I would like that to be answered about uh, if okay. you have any solutions to that, um, that situation. Excellent, great. Look, um, uh, um, maybe this uh, person here, just wait, wait, wait for the thing. Very simple, possibly. Not meant to be, well, it's probably naive, not meant to be faux naive, but given that we would agree with the filters that are, let's say, pathological in your talk, are, are you proposing unlimited immigration or how do we begin to think about what sort of filters we might have and avoid the prejudices which you've so clearly mm. outlined? All right, thanks. But this is a very large number of different points. Um, I think we'll just stop for the moment. So we've got um, over yeah. here about um, English and um, different sorts of policing. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so the question about speaking English, I think it's interesting the way it's been framed by the Conservatives because what you find was when you look at the recent history is the um, English-speaking requirements, the tests for people who were non-EU migrants, this was all pre-Brexit. You know, even being in consideration in a major way, uh, were introduced by New Labour. And so it's kind of used as this kind of marker of, like, we're being tough. Um, and what you find is, I mean, I think there's kind of a problem with it anyway when, you know, you find people move around the world, don't speak the language, and then want to learn the language, and it's a very good way to learn the language, to move to another country, um, is that you do find most people actually do speak English and speak, you know, English fine. Um, but I think, I mean, I don't have an answer, direct answer to your question in terms of like, who should judge that because I don't really agree with the, I don't really agree with this being a way of framing it. I don't really agree with this being a, a, this test in this particular way. Um, and in terms of the immigration enforcement question, uh, I don't know. No, I don't think so in terms of devolution and police forces, but I do think that you have a situation where there are particular cities that are sanctuary cities, and particular cities where you find local councils will say, and this is something that happened quite recently actually, I don't know if you saw the, um, there was uh, reporting around the really small number of unaccompanied child refugees that the government has brought has allow, allowed into the country to be reunited with family or um, next of kin, uh, meaning that, you know, the, the, the estimate was around 10,000, I think, 
children had been forced over the past 10 years to, or maybe it was 100,000, um, my memory is now confusing uh, numbers, um, to come into the country under, like, in the backs of lorries or like basically making incredibly dangerous routes to try and get here. And interestingly, so this point you make about maybe different areas and different localities responding differently is that when this was in the news, there were certain councils, including conservative councils, saying to the government, saying to a conservative government, we can take more people. Like, we, have the we have the space, we have, the, we have, the, we have space. Um, it's not an issue, and that hasn't really been responded to. As, as, as I know, if anyone correct me if I'm wrong, that had the, there hasn't been a, a proportionate response from government in terms of thinking about people coming in. And so it's kind of this rubbing up between like the local authorities that are saying, actually, there is, we're, we're, we're happy to do this, and it, because it's decided at a national level, this not really being something that's considered um, and something that shifts. Uh, I mean, I'd be interested over the next five years to see if there's more of a push like more of a push from some of these sanctuary cities and more of a push from some of these authorities. Um, uh, and then the question of economics. Yeah, I mean, I think that one of the things is it, that needs to be done, and this is something that Jonathan Porter said to me, is like thinking about planning um, in, a, in, a, in a smart way, like planning an investment in a way that makes sense. And so like even the question of this registering, you know, someone I interviewed who was having to register, I think, every week or every other week at an immigration um, center, even for someone who lived in London, it like cost her a lot to get to this particular place and was not good for her to have to go into this center in the way that it was kind of set up. And so there's a real, there's a real question about how the whole system functions and then the knock-on effect of that for the a particular area. Um, I don't know particularly about this particular case, so I can't speak to the case itself, but I would say that one of the things that has been said to me time and again by different people is like, you should treat it like any other kind of population change and invest accordingly. And that is possible. It's possible to do that planning. It's just that that hasn't always been done well in terms of the levels of investment. But then it, also the planning wasn't done particularly well under the new Labour years in terms of thinking about movement, and that was an issue. Um, but it shouldn't necessarily be singled out as a distinct form. Maybe treating it as a broader form of population change is, is a better way of dealing with it. Particularly because what you find is when you look at the economics of it, it's like people who move here tend to move here the, the, the way that it tends to be is people who are younger, people who don't yet have children. And so you can kind of plan for usage of like things like the health service and things like the school system, just like you can with anyone else who's living in the UK. Yeah, I mean, I don't, I, yeah, I don't know about this particular case, but I think there's a problem with like how the whole system is structured and how people are being treated within it. Um, and the question about unlimited immigration, I get asked that a lot. Um, I mean, I don't, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not here to say exactly what immigration policy should be. I think that, it, for me, I go back to what I said do, in, the, in the talk, is that one of the things that Asad Raymond from One Once said is, like, imagining a world in which also people don't have to move. Like, that is, I think that's a really good starting point for thinking about movement and what that means. But for me, movement has always happened and it always will happen, and it is about how you do that in the safest and best way possible for people. And so one of the things, for instance, I kind of don't, come from the starting point of numbers because I find it a particularly unhelpful way and it's the way that it's always talked about. Um, but one of the things, for instance, I'll give you an example from how it's talked about at the moment is like one of the things that people in the UK and Europe are talking about is climate migrants. The UK and Europe is going to have so many people who move here um, because of climate degradation. And what you find, and I was just at a... Um, I was just at a um, committee hearing in the Commons today about this where academics were talking about their research around this and what they actually say is this is not 
this isn't the issue that it's in the way that it's framed to be. It's true that people's their existing circumstances, whether that be poverty, whether that be things to do with agricultural outputs and people's livelihoods, are being exacerbated by climate change. That's true. We don't ignore that. But a to single out as being about climate change is kind of is misleading. It's, it buys into the kind of scare language. But B, most people are moving within countries or within regions. And so this idea that huge numbers of people, you know, this kind of really dehumanizing language of floods and uh, um, like waves of migration so often talked about, are going to try and move to the UK, is just not true. And so to even talk about thinking about moving away from the kind of bordering processes we have, we do need to think about what patterns of movement are and not think about it in what I think is often quite a, um, a way that is often I see as kind of scaremongering. And, you know, you, you obviously talking about this in the UK right now when we are leaving the EU and, like, the debate around that is, you know, there, it, there are parts of the world, not only Europe, but actually other parts of the world as well, where bordering, the internal borders between countries, like between these blocks, are being, have been, are like, almost non-existent or very, very like, invisibilized to a way. And I am not defending Fortress Europe and its violent borders, but actually movement is more complicated than people, everyone saying, okay, everyone in this part of the world wants to come to the UK or everyone wants to come to Europe. I think we should de-problematize that movement, the movement that does happen, but we need to, I think we need to see it in a slightly different way and frame it in a different way. And part of that is also going back to Assad's point that I talked about before, is realizing that a lot of people can't move. Like a lot of people can't afford to move, even if they wanted to. And so I'm not defending that system, but I just think for me, starting from the point of unlimited immigration is like, is not really how I understand the movement and how I think about it anyway. For me, I want to think about the bordering processes. How do those borders impact people? What does it mean for people's movement? And like, if you look at something, like asylum, it's very difficult to seek asylum in a country like the UK. It's very difficult to get here. You have to be in country for most people to claim asylum. And like we've we are far more likely to talk about the problems, the numbers of asylum seekers in the public debate than we are to really, maybe this has shifted a bit in the past few years, um, but to really, really put under scrutiny the bordering processes that mean people have to risk their lives to, to move. Um, and so I kind of, yeah, it's maybe an unsatisfactory answer for you, but I kind of don't really see it as thinking about unlimited immigration or not. I want to think about movement differently and thinking about borders slightly differently as well. Hello, uh, I'm Marin. I'm a, I'm a PhD student here. Um, I wanted to raise maybe a point that I think connects to a number of things that you've, you've said. Um, that's got to do with maybe the sort of ramifications of um, these anti-immigration policies, but beyond the actual just policy, um, and how what you've described as the sort of the human cost of um, this anti-immigration, like the hostile environment, uh, is actually felt at the LSE, like in this in this university, like in a lot of other universities. But we had a, a case like that feeds exactly into that. This year, um, we had a, a campaign um, at the beginning of the term last year the, um, for PhD students on tier four visas. Uh, we found out that the, the LSE um, visa policy for PhD students, for international PhD students, was that um, their student visas would not be renewed after they submitted their PhD. Uh, which means that it would not potentially not cover the period that they need for defending their PhD and then um, 
to do their revisions. Um, and when we brought that up with the, with the school, uh, we were told that uh, if that was a problem for them, they should, have just, uh, they should just submit their PhD earlier, so have less time to do their PhD effectively so that they could do it on the student visa that they were given initially. Um, now, obviously, this has a lot of consequences for PhD students, uh, not just in terms of duration. The, um, the school was saying, oh, you know, you can leave just at the end of your student visa. You can, you can go back to your country, wherever that is, and then you can come back on a tourist visa for your PhD viva. And another effect of that is that um, to be able to claim the doctoral extension scheme, which is the, the particular type of um, visa for young researchers to be able to look for a job in the UK, you have to be on a British student visa at the time uh, where your PhD is awarded. So these people were, were denied academic support, um, obviously the, 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 their support network and everything to do their revisions, to prepare for their viva potentially, and they were also denied the right to stay to look for a job. Um, where this is, this is really exactly in line with what you say, is that, um, hey, look, strangely... I mean, this is a very important point, but there are quite a lot of people want to ask questions. So, that's true. Yeah, um, I, got, I got to the chase, sorry. <laughs> um, but yeah, where, where I think this is very weird and very, that's the question that I want to ask, is that this is not a home office requirement. The universities do not have to do that. Other universities do not do that and actually give visa extension for this. Um, and we could never, nobody at the LSE was able to tell us when exactly this policy was brought in and why exactly, but because of the environment we were in, everybody was still implementing it and they were defending it when we contested it. Now, this is a good story because we actually won it, we had a school-wide campaign and uh, eventually, yeah. But what, have you gone into looking in, into that, like how, on the basis of these policies, institutions will then um, sort of go over and beyond to sort of prove their eagerness or like, I don't know what exactly. Okay. Mm. Right, look, thanks. As I say, that, that is well worth asking, but um, can I ask people to be a little more succinct just so that we can have um, a number of more questions here? Um, so can I have this gentleman here, and then um, I think you've had your hand up for some time. Um, yes, um, um, my name is Ben Odofin. I'm, I'm currently a civil servant, but I've had a lifetime um, uh, of academic interest in race, racism, anti-immigrant racism, and so on. Um, Maya, um, your, your, your lecture, your very interesting lecture, quite rightly humanised the um, whole kind of story of um, anti-immigrant prejudice in this country by pointing out that, um, of course, we have a human tragedy of um, hundreds of thousands of people who are, quite ris who are risking their lives um, and sometimes also dying in trying to get to this country to make a better life for themselves. I just wanted to just make the point also that a corollary to that is the fact also that we don't um, look at um, the uh, enforcement policy under which 
um, um, for decades, uh, mainly but not exclusively Afro-Caribbean people who are being forcibly deported are actually being killed, who are dying in the, during the process of deportation. Uh, the Joy Gardner case is just uh, one of so many over the decades of forcible deportations which lead to the death of the person who um, is deported. So I suppose my question is, why is this area so under-researched and um, what can we do to, to, to get more particularly qualitative research into um, that side of the story? <clears throat> yes, I, I'm Antonino Yugiro, I'm an alumnus of the IC, and I'm a Roman Catholic. And the reason I mention that is I was actually quite shocked when you said David Cameron didn't know any part of public service that uh, I've been overwhelmed or put under severe pressure, because I could have told him one thing straight up, Catholic schools. The Polish immigration was overwhelmingly Catholic, and that you will struggle to find uh, to mention a Catholic school that's been built. Only because I'm so interested in the subject can I name the handful that have been built. And you complained a lot about uh, the dehumanization of uh, immigrants. And, but you only mentioned religion once, Islam, which I'm not terribly interested in, to be honest, uh, because I have my own religion, thank you. Um, but your failure to mention only in passing religion, aren't you yourself dehumanizing immigrants? All right. So, look, it's four very different, uh, three very different questions. Uh, the first one here, if, if I can just put a spin on it, I mean, I think what was said at the end is particularly important because, because the, the issue is, and this was absolutely as you said, um, that, that institutions seem to go above and beyond what's called, and they seem to sort of internalise the logic and, and take it forward. And I don't know. Do you, can you give some reflections on that? Yeah, I mean, thank you for that because I don't, I did, I didn't know about that, and I'd be interested to talk to you a bit more about the campaign as well to hear about like what what exactly happened within the institution. Yeah, I guess a slightly different, firstly, a slightly different point that I'll just very quickly make, and then I'll speak directly to that. Is I think also one of the things is particularly with the hostile environment is like the stuff around like, docs, not cops, doing things in uh, NHS, and there is unis against um, border controls, which is a group that's doing some of this work, but there's a lot of unwitting uh, reproduction of the hostile environment. I mean, maybe some of it's known, but I know from working in a university, like unwitting kind of border policing that's going on, right? Which is obviously that's the line that's used by organizations like Liberty and how we should understand the hostile environment, turning people into border guards without them knowing. But I think, yeah, I think you're right. And I don't know enough about how this functions and why it is the institutions are doing this. But one of the people that I actually interviewed who, um, who I think it ends up impacting individuals' cases, like is basically what you've, what you've implied. And one of the people that I interviewed who'd come to the UK to study, what she found is when she was trying to get an extension for her studies, um, that uh, 
the institution in question, and she, she hadn't finished her studies in a particular amount of time because for a number of different things that had happened in her life, and the institution in question didn't want to give her an extension, and they claimed it was on the grounds that they feared that they would lose their ability to sponsor people. And so I don't know what the, I, you know, I didn't, the way the interview went, I don't know what the institution was and why they gave this um, argument and how accurate that was, but it seemed to me that this then had such a massive knock-on impact in her, on her life that she became undocumented. It seemed to me that there was this kind of... Um, this kind of punitive way in which people are treated if they don't meet the requirements as, as it is. Um, and I don't know, is the, is the honest answer about how else this is manifesting and where in terms of people doing some of this, like going further than what the government is asking of them. And I, I guess, I would say maybe less for institutions like this and maybe more for individuals who are carrying out some of this, like people like landlords, um, who you know have to do this like them, them, themselves um, is that the way that a lot of people who work in some of these immigration services describe it to me is like the the um, without wanting to downplay that the very distinct forms of racism that are re reproduced by some of these individuals is like the culture of hostility creates like pushes it even further so the the rule is here and the hostility exists in such a way like for the people who are doing the enforcement as well that it pushes them to go even further and have this level of suspicion it's kind of how i read part of it but for an institution like this i'd be very interested to talk to you after about what you think the reasoning is about why you know why implement something you don't have to implement um I think it's a really good question, and I wonder if it is a function of the way the hostile environment and distinctly the way immigration legislation works. Um, the qu and I think the question that you asked about um, deaths and deportation, I think, is a really, really important one. You know, we know certain individuals, people like Jimmy Mubenga, but it's very um, what I mean in terms of mapping it. So I think there's two things. Is One is like the forms of normalization that have occurred that mean that sometimes it does go under research because people are seeing this as a kind of like unfortunate but an outcome of a system that needs to exist, right? And this, I mean, I imagine you'd also know given your interests it's like related to there's a very distinct forms of racism with this kind of racial hierarchy that exists whose life is seen as like the least worthy and whose is seen as the most. I imagine that it is related to that, but I think it's also, I think it's also from doing the research, it's also the fact that so much of this goes unseen. And so there are so many people, so the Institute of Race Relations has, and I think that, I don't know if they still keep this, but they did keep a record of all the people who died in immigration detention or at the hands of immigration officials, or you have a number of these cases that I came across that were reported in the media at the time of people um, falling from balconies um, for, because they fear immigration officials coming up, uh, turning up at their home and thinking that they're there and really like worrying for um, their, themselves, but also people who've just been pushed to the edge of like waiting for years and years and years, just feeling like they can't cope anymore. And actually, the Joy Gardner. The documentary that I mentioned that's on Channel 4, that you can still watch online, it talks about some of these cases as well as Joy's case. It talks about some of these people who fell to their deaths for fear of these immigration officials. And you also have instances of people climbing into the plane under carriages and then dying um, because they're trying to get into the country. And I think it's, it's just it's, a lot of it is unseen and uncaptured because it's just as treated at times as like, 
just someone how do they die like was it to do with the immigration was it to do with immigration legislation is it just an outcome inevitable outcome of a system that is necessary and it's unfortunate that it's happened that's kind of how a lot of it reads in the in the public debate and so i think i think that that's part of part of it but again like afterwards maybe we can have a discussion about why you think that this is also the case because i'd be interested to hear your thoughts about that um and the question about i don't think i've dehumanized um I don't think I have. I, if there's more of an explanation as to how that I may have, then I'm up, up for discussing that. But on the question of schools, for me, it is about making sure that we invest properly. And I just don't think that that has happened. Okay, now we've got time for... If everyone's concise, we've got time for one more round of questions. Um, Thank you for your talk. I think you unwittingly um, missed a point, which is... Since Margaret Thatcher, the government has been undermining workers, um, and there's no, um, they haven't got the rights, they haven't got rent controls anymore. Their the population, whatever their color, are squeezed wherever they've come from. So leaving aside the um, cultural and the social aspect, it's the economic aspect where um, people are, are working on zero hours contracts, and a lot of the indigenous white people they can't, they don't understand who to blame, which is really this government and the one before and the policies. They've, and I think you missed out on that completely. That all needs to be revamped, really. All right, thanks. Um, now, um, someone was over here. Is this woman here, please? Um, hello, I'm Winita, um, Winita Cox, and I'm I do nationality, identity, and belonging. Um, and I'll be looking into the whole Windrush thing as well, just to answer your question. But um, I wanted to ask you, because I've seen a lot of reports recently about um, a lot of people held in detention who weren't, be able, who weren't able to get medical attention, and I was just confused as to, do, do people in detention centres not have an automatic right to that medical attention? I mean, isn't that a human rights issue? So I just I couldn't quite understand why there have been so many cases of people who've you know, been faced with m medical health problems that haven't been addressed. All Thank right, you. Sorry. Thank you. I'm Maria. I'm a student at LSHCM. And as a public health professional, then I would like to ask if um, there are actually any kind of protective uh, measurements or anything protective of the migrants, uh, considering that a hostile environment is actually a human rights abuse when in terms of their access to medical care to take on, the, especially when in terms of antenatal care, because they're presented the bill straight from the beginning, which makes migrant women not to attend medical care, which is actually not just one life that is in danger, but two, if not even more. Thank you. Okay, thank you for those. Um, yeah, I think that's a good, really important point that you make about uh, workers and wages. And one of the things, I mean, there's two things that I would, I agree with you. Um, and there's two things, and I do talk about that in, in, in the book. Um, there's two things that I would, I guess I would add, but I think just speak to your point. And one is that something that I should have said, and that I think is important to note is, although, you know, the immigration system itself is like, it's classed, it's, it's racialized, it's gendered, it's not really good for many people at all. So unless you're like, unbelievably rich it's not a good system for a lot of people like for anyone right in terms of like the bureaucracy in terms of the fees like i think there's a problem with the system as a whole for everyone it's just that the impact it has on you i think gets worse 
the further down the class scale you go, or if you are not racialized as white, I think it, the, the, the real problem, you know, you get a real lot of real, of real, real problems. Um, and so I think that's a really important point to make, because whilst we want to understand how it functions in really discriminatory ways, I don't think it's good for just many people at all. Um, and the other thing that I would add to your point, which I agree with, is that one, something that someone said to me who is a journalist who works on, like, who's really doing a lot of reporting around austerity, really when the cuts were beginning to bite, what she said is, it's very interesting is that you go to certain spaces and you find people who are, needs um, support from on the social security system, so in the terms of benefits, um, people who need that rubbing up alongside people who are trying to get their immigration cases sorted. And if you look at the two systems, so if you look at, for instance, the things that have been done for disability allowance, like very bureaucratic, very difficult to navigate. They tried to introduce a phone line um, where you would have to pay in order to hear about what was happening with your claim being processed, which was thankfully... Um, the, the opposition party made sure that that was stopped, but actually you compare that with the immigration system for some people where it's very bureaucratic, very difficult to navigate, very costly. Now if you want an email from a response from the Home Office about your immigration case, it's going to cost you about £5. And so what you actually find is that um, it's kind of the thing that you're suggesting is that people are occupying very, very similar spaces in terms of how they're being treated by the state. And it's not positive experience at all and so the the degradation of rights is a degradation of rights for everyone and the argument that's made by a lot of uh, migrant rights campaigners is like you know with some of this although they have been eroding like when you say worker protections things like look if you look at the trade union laws for people who are british what you find is if you look at some of the things that are being done to migrant populations some of that will be rolled out to british citizens at some point right and so i don't think you want to make the argument to, because the, a British person is more important than a person who isn't British, but I think you could do that to explain that to people who maybe aren't sure about who's to blame, who's the cause here. And I interestingly did speak to some people who, there's, there's a, I talk about it um, at length, there's, there are groups of people who are campaigning, you know, people who are working class Britons or working class pe people in the UK who are campaigning against deportations, like are forming these bonds of solidarity with people who the contemporary discourse would assume that they would feel too different from actually forming those bonds of solidarity and fighting the state, both for better rights for themselves, but also for better rights for the people who happen to not be British. And so you find those moments of kind of hope that go counter to the narrative about who's going to like immigration and who's not. Um, and the question about detention... Yeah. It's super quick because, you know... Yeah, yeah. One of the one of the campaigners' lines is like, "It's not migrants bringing down your wages, it's bosses." And I mean, you can take that a step further and talk about like the structure of employment law and thinking about the rights that people have access to. Um, the question about detention, yeah, I think is a good question, um, and I don't know. I think yes, it is a human rights issue, and people should, I, as I understand it, should have access to that to that medical to to, to medics in those spaces, there's no reason why they shouldn't. And I imagine there's a functioning of how those spaces work. They kind of operate as these kind of liminal spaces where these rights at times are kind of frozen. And if you know anything about Yarl's word, right, it's the kinds of forms of alleged abuse that goes on in spaces like that. And interestingly, kind of related, um, is that it's also a space where people can be paid one pound an hour to do basic 
tasks. So within immigration detention centres, they're also run by private, some of which are run by private companies. You find the detainees as um, a way, as like, as, um, because there isn't many leisure activities, a, a way, something for them to do is to work Right? To, but when I say work, it's carrying out some of the basic and necessary functions within the detention centre, and they're paid a pound an hour. And the government defend that to say, well, it's giving them something to do, it's not really work. But it is, and what it means is that it's contradictory, because these same politicians are saying, wrongly saying immigrants are undercutting your wages, and then also saying, oh, but in this space where some of these spaces that are run by private corporations, it's fine for them to not hire people and pay them the, the, you know, the living wage, because these people need something to do with their time and a pound an hour is fine. Like, there's a contradiction there. So, to me, I don't, I mean, it's something maybe, you know, if you're studying, you could also, like, look into how this is and why this is. But to me, it reads as this kind of the way that the detention centre functions and has functioned for quite some time. Um, and the question about protective um, measures, yeah, I think that the problem in part is maybe you'll also have a better idea than me. Is well, I guess there's one is that there are, there are organisations like Docs Not Cops that have like are working with healthcare professionals to resist some of this, to resist some of the um, some of the, the the kinds of border controls that are going on in the NHS. And I would I would look at the work of Liberty if you want to know more about it because they're doing a lot around the hostile environment. They have a good, very good guide about what the hostile environment is and how it functions. But I would say that it's like one of the major issues is the, the culture of fear that it's created is like people not wanting to go to, to um, even if they have urgent medical care, they're not wanting to go to their doctor or their, or their hospital for fear that this will then mean that they get, then end up meeting immigration enforcement, which is really just, yeah, which, which is to, yeah, 100% understandable why that is, because it's been created and it's very real if you look at the Windrush scandal. Evidently, this is a major issue. Um, but I think it's trying to build capacity around some of the people who are resisting it and refusing to carry out some of those duties to try to create some of these spaces where people maybe feel like they can access what is essential medical care, as well as non-essential medical care. Well, listen, thank you so much, Maya. I mean, you started by saying that you weren't going to talk about the contemporary policy debates, but in some ways you've done something far more important by trying to put those debates into a longer-term historical context. I mean, a context of political and legislative history, of social history, of the history of ideas. And what I heard, at least, was both an argument or an analysis of the arguments and the assumptions that underlie anti-immigrant politics, as well as the damaging impact that they can have. And at the same time, an appeal and an attempt to deliver an understanding of the human impact of these policies. Now, the arguments that Mayer's made, as you can see, they're made with great force and they're very trenchant. And they're set out fully and in writing in her book, which is outside. So if you want to follow up on them, do go and grab a copy. And um, Mayer will stay here and you're more than welcome to come and talk to her or get signed afterwards. But before you do any of those things, can you join me in thanking our speaker, Dr. Mayer Goodfellow?